Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the From the Back Seas podcast, a podcast from the back seas. I'm Jerry Liu, and our intrepid leader, founder, my other co-host, Zach Penser, is not in the office today. Joining me is Tucker Booth. Oh, that's right. And since Zach's not here, I thought we might as well play a different song today, Jerry. But why not some Kenny Loggins anyway, bud? From the back tees, ninjas. Oh, you can ride my tail anytime, Jerry. Anytime. You excited for that new uh, Top Gun Maverick coming out? I've yet to see a trailer. I'm kind of trying to go into it as blind as I can. I did see the trailer, and I have to say I am mildly pumped about it. You know, I, I, I don't know. How old are you, Jerry? I turned 35 in December. So you vaguely remember the Top Gun phenomenon then, back in the olden times. I wasn't really uh, online yet mentally for the phenomenon, but I definitely owned the movie on VHS by age seven and watched it a zillion times. And it's, it's a fun, campy movie that like, I like to go back and be like, oh, I want to pick this movie apart, but damn it, this is really good. There's like, just, it's, it's, a, it's a Blink-182 concert, it's, it's bubblegum, it's whatever. Yeah, I I was old enough. I I'm I just turned forty, so I was a kid when it came out, and was you know the appropriate adolescent age to be all excited about it. I think I was about seven when it was out in theaters. But what I remember most was that even then we could tell that there was a lot of cheese to it. That the acting yeah. was kind of cheese, and the soundtrack was fun but cheesy, and. The jet scenes were exciting, but, you know, it wasn't like we thought it was the greatest movie. But somehow still it became this kind of iconic moment in the 80s for film. So I guess when you see the new one coming out, all I can think is my buddy Val Kilmer, who I used to work for. Shout outs, Val. I hope you're in this. I have read that he gets a cameo. I know he has a voice box now in his neck. I hope that they have Iceman in the hospital or something so that he can be like, Maverick, go kill those Ruskies. I mean, I just want some dying Iceman scene in this. Please. <laughs> oh, goodness. That's, uh, that's too funny. Uh, I was just looking up on Rotten Tomatoes. Top Gun, 55% with the critics, 83% with the audience. That is a telltale sign that really pisses me off where what are the critics doing to a movie? We'll get to the golf in a second, folks, but it's... Even in 1986 when this movie dropped, it was what it was. It was cornball. It was cheesy. It was fun. But at least if a movie knows it, it's good. That's what to me makes RoboCop. The more I watch it, more of a comedy than anything else. When I go back and watch it, they're making jokes about the new car that gets eight miles a gallon, not seven. And I'm like, this is 1982. This is a hilarious joke. <laughs> RoboCop will always be remembered by me as the movie that my parents forbade me to see because they went and saw it first and they said it's too violent and gruesome for me. And I tried to sneak and watch it at a friend's house one night because their parents would let them watch it. And my parents caught wind and they called the friend's house and said, send him home now. And I was, oh, no. I was chastised for that. I got to tell you, Jerry, to this day, I don't think I've ever seen it in its entirety. And you're making me want to go watch it. It, it, it is. I, 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 I'll look it up later. But like, satirically, it's way ahead of its time. And the fact that as a kid, I liked the sequels better because they're more action-packed. I mean, granted, in the first, like, 
10, 15 minutes, Peter Weller gets blown to smithereens by a bunch of gang members. One of them was uh, Eric Foreman's father, Red Foreman, on uh, that 70s show. Pretty nice. Awesome. <laughs> he, plays a, he plays a great villain. But uh, ultimately, I remember the kid watching lots of sci-fi violence, lots of this, lots of that, and seeing Peter Weller get turned into Swiss cheese is probably the first gory moment I saw that rocked me until I saw the opening scene of Saving Private Ryan. But needless to say, it's, uh, it's funny. Like, the sunscreen commercials where they lost the ozone layer, so they got to put, like, this neon green cream all over every inch of their body just to sit by the pool. <laughs> <laughs> and it's Detroit, too, a city that knew it was going to fuck itself and, and, and destroy itself and wither away. <laughs> I think Peter Weller is an underrated great actor from that era, too. So we got to give Peter Weller some props, man. Is he, oh, yeah. is he dead? Why, why haven't we seen him in anything oh, no. lately? He actually was in a couple of later seasons of Sons of Anarchy. Really good role. Um, and he also he's popped up as like the villain Starfleet officer in one of the new Chris Pine uh, Star Trek movies. He's good. He, he, he plays the heavy still really, really good, considering we all know him as Alex Murphy, RoboCop. They had a trouble creep. And, uh, but, uh, yeah, that's, uh, he's, he hasn't done too much. He's had kind of a quick tangent. Uh, rest in peace, uh, Rutger Hauer, who was essentially, to me, kind of like a Peter Weller light, even though Peter Weller wasn't in too much. But uh, Yeah, that was like Danish Peter Weller right there. Yeah. <laughs> well, I thought Dolph Lundgren was going to be like a Danish Peter Weller, and then Dolph Lundgren, I realized, had two PhDs and was a foot taller. I'm like, nope, Dolph, Dolph. He's good. It's funny. People were running down the Rutger Hauer discography, and obviously people remember him for Blade Runner because that's such a cult classic. Sure. People, oh, yeah. people were mentioning Lady Hawk. That's another pretty good one from that era with some big stars in it. But I'm about to what say, what about what about Hobo with a Shotgun? Is anybody giving that yeah. new love? I heard, I think uh, Paul Papp from the Dan Patrick Show mentioned it. And to, to which I replied, don't forget, I said, let's be forget Split Second, which was probably the only Rutger Hauer movie I've ever really watched where he starts in it as a kid. And you want to talk about something our parents shouldn't have let us watch. Jesus Christ, that was a bad <laughs> movie and raunchy. Uh. God bless the 80s, man, when political correctness had no place in film whatsoever. And cocaine ran rampant, and there was no quality in anything we made. Well, I mean, we're talking about golf. What about Caddyshack? I was just watching that on Golf Channel recently, and they didn't even edit this out on Golf Channel. There's this scene where they're sitting at the country club smoking weed, and the guy says, I want to get some more of this. And they're like, well, we should just go down to the city and get some from some Negroes downtown. Do you remember that? It was, it was Judge Smell's uh, nephew, or no, grandson, Spalding, and somebody said something. And to which it's the most inappropriate line ever. It was such bad behavior from Spalding. I love the kid so much. He's so bad. He said, it's like, of course it's good. I got it from a Negro. It's like, <laughs> what? And this was like 1980. Okay, God bless you. It's 1980. Segregation had been over a long time, but I mean, good Lord. I guess Golf Channel thought not enough African-Americans were watching that movie as it played at 9 p.m. a couple weeks ago, so they just let it roll. I don't know why. Thanks, okay. Golf Channel. Dale Booth should be censored. <laughs> That's right. Shame on you, Golf Channel. Boycott Golf Channel. You heard it here first. No, no, you censored you for saying, uh, like, they must assume uh, no black people watch Golf Channel at that time. And, like, how dare you? <laughs> okay, I'm sure plenty of black people watch Golf Channel. Shout out to all of them. Thank you for watching. <laughs> I'm um, very sorry. So, um, I, I suppose at some point we should probably get to the golf here. Uh, let's, uh, let's recap the obvious here. But before we get into too much, because... A lot of people don't realize our writing staff or our entertainment staff, so to speak, at FromTheBackSeas.com 
Uh, we uh, really, none of us are in any literal proximity to each other. I think Nolan, our Tiger rider, is like five hours away from me via car, and we're like the closest people on the team together. But uh, ultimately, I get a lot of people on my end asking, what's the, what's, not necessarily what's the deal with Tucker, but who the hell is Tucker Dale Booth? Because he came onto the staff, and he brought us the Peter Kessler piece. He's working on the Wheeland piece. He's got all this stuff that, not to say we couldn't necessarily get on our own, but these are some definite icebergs that like, came right out of the harbor for us that were amazing. So, Tucker, what, what really, we haven't even got it, like, you know, bullshit much. What got you into golf? When did you start? Well, it's interesting because the way I tell it is when I was a kid, my dad worked at a real estate company and we lived right on the perimeter of a public golf course in Portland, Oregon. And I know you're out there in Oregon, Jerry. We lived in East Moreland and the West Moreland golf course, which is a nice public course, was three blocks from our front door. My, my buddies and I, when we were kids, used to sneak onto the course by climbing over a, a fence that was right by the little park that we would go and swing at. So we were always getting into trouble on this golf course, even when I was four and five and six years old. My dad, when I was about nine, says, would you like me to get you golf lessons? And I go, why would I want to play that fat old man sport? I mean, seriously, dad, why would I want to play that fat old man sport? You and your old fat old man friends. And he gives me this sad look and then says, okay. But now I get to be about 30, 10 years ago, and I get bit by the bug. Now, in between, I had started watching it and expressing interest in it because I'm into all sports. You know this. I like all sports. And obviously, in the Tiger Woods dominance era, most people my age got into golf because Tiger's pretty much just a couple years older than me. He's 43. I'm 40. So, you know, the Tiger Woods era was my era when he was killing it. And we all started getting excited about it. And not just Tiger, but, but especially Tiger. And then watching all these tournaments and understanding the, the history of golf. And I read a lot, so I started reading a lot about all the old guys and the legend and all this. And I guess I'd say around 30, I really fell in love with the game as well as watching Tiger and the, and the great guys play it. I understand. I mean, and you, you know, you're a caddy. It's an amazing game, Jerry. It's probably one of the greatest games ever created of any type. Because it, it, it's unique. It's unique and it mirrors life in a way that I think is almost more apropos than any other sport that most people play. We're talking about you versus the ball, not an opponent. We're talking about you could yeah, play you versus yourself, yeah. You could play it alone or you could play it as a match. But you can play it alone, and it's still utterly enjoyable. It's not like you have to generate excitement out of shooting at a hoop or something or kicking a soccer ball in a net with no goalie or something. This is straight you versus the hole, and you can do it alone, and it's just as fun. And also, you got to play the ball where it lies, and it's an integrity sport more than just about any other one I can think of. There's no real referee, at least when you're playing it as an amateur. And you have to play it where it lies, count every stroke, no matter how good or bad. And you have to learn how to get in and out of trouble, which is what most golfers, including the amateurs, of course, are doing almost all the time. You're hitting it into trouble and then you're getting out. You're hitting it into the woods and you got to find your way out. It really feels like life. So I got excited and just wanted to learn. But at 30, the first thought I had was, why didn't I take my dad up on this when I was a kid? Because now it's hard. And now mentally I'm in a different place and physically I'm in a different place and all of this. It was definitely a, a wicked learning curve to get any kind of a swing at all. But I started in and right when I started, my son was born. So 
what really got me into golf to answer your question was the boy even when he was a baby at like one year old i would want to go to the park with him but i wouldn't want to just go and watch him run in circles so i would bring a club and some um practice balls some of these spongy practice balls right that that can really get in the air and i would just start swinging and he would want to play with me so i got him some shaved down little kid clubs and we started hitting spongy balls and wiffle balls and i'd even bring a few real ones for him and by one and a half years old jerry this boy could fly the golf ball through the air he just figured it out he was a freak he just had unnatural hand-eye coordination for that age and by two, three, four, he wanted to go to the park and hit balls for 90 minutes till I told him, all right, let's stop. It's time to go home. He had the, the desire to stick with it. So it made me want to stick with it. He had a learning curve that was a lot easier than mine. But, you know, now he's nine years old. He's gone to six straight years of golf camp where he consistently wins best golfer for his age group. Last year at golf camp, he was beating kids that were in their teens. At eight years old, he was beating 14-year-olds. And we're about even. When we go out and play, you know, I may be a little bit better with the irons. He's definitely better with the driver. I'm a little bit better putter, but some days he beats me. And it's really fun where he and I can go out just one-on-one and play a match-play game, which is usually what we do where we just play whoever wins the hole. And we have a really great time together and you know obviously my goal now especially since he's believing in himself is to try and get him good enough that he can get a scholarship so at least he can get a college education as a result of it whether he ever wants to take it any further or not and he's already believing in that so I guess that's what got me into golf is Tiger Woods falling in love with the game and the history of it and then my son and how wonderful he plays it I've never asked you. I've, uh, I've joked around with you on, uh, online before, but uh, what's your boy's name if you don't mind sharing on over the airways? Oh, no, no worries. It's Maximilian Dale Booth. So be on the lookout for Max Booth. That's yeah. the name right I, there. I was, I was going to say, like, we have a little, like, uh, not to already toot the horn quickly here, but we have a little Phil Mickelson Jr. on our hands here because that's exactly kind of how Lefty started golfing was he was just mimicking his dad when his dad was practicing and just watching him and following him and asking him questions. The next thing you know, you just, you know, you got a monster on your hands. Well, and just like Lefty, the boy is also a lefty. So that is truly uh, an, an apt metaphor. He started out left-handed. We decided we didn't want to correct him. It's helped him out a lot with baseball, too. He becomes one of the real valuable left-handed hitters and pitchers on the team. And, yeah, it's, oh, yeah. it's, it's exciting to see somebody do something as difficult as golf in reverse from the majority of people and do it as well as he does, man. I mean, he can drive a golf ball 150, 200 yards. It's amazing. Right. Yeah. I mean, people would be often surprised at their limitations or whatever, regardless of when they pick it up or whatnot. But, I mean, that's, I, I can safely look at it as, like, golf to me has always been one of the few sports that's also a hobby as well. I mean, it's a cliche to say we can like, get off the couch at any age and really give it, a, a, a you know, the goal of college effort even in our 60s. But it's also, I mean... It's one of the few professional sports that you really can just walk up to the store, buy your stuff, and then walk out to the golf course and play. You can't do that, say, for NASCAR, you'll get arrested or kill somebody. <laughs> and for any other sport, really, unless you keep it up at a collegiate pace, it's like, we're not going out and playing baseball or, or like, padded football or, God forbid, I mean, I don't even see adults playing freaking soccer, like, unless it's, like, a social beer league. And, like, you know what? That's what softball's for. I've, I've been a big participant of that before. 
And then, yeah, you got your pickup hockey and pickup basketball, which is endearing or whatever, but those are mostly guys, like, you get guys in their late 30s where they're just hoping they don't blow their meniscus to shreds for the last time, and that's pretty much their athletic prowess. Golf can stick with you forever. I've been golfing for 30 years absent-mindedly, as I like to say, because as I was just telling my caddy yesterday, um, I, I honestly, I've been playing 30 years, and every month I'm getting a little bit better. It's insane. Like, I've only broken 80 10 times in my life, but five times have been in the past two months. I shit you not. And, like, like I, I, for lack of a better term, not to toot my own horn, I feel like I'm trending. Like, it's just, like, when the, when the bug bites, you can bite you at any time. And I'm lucky that I just never quit throughout the years because I've always been a big advocate of saying a hobby shouldn't piss us off. Like, video games sometimes get me upset a little bit when, like, some nine-year-old Korean kid on Call of Duty, like, kills me a couple times in a row. Like, yeah, that's worth getting upset. <laughs> other than that, other than that, video games shouldn't really, they're, they're hobbies. Like, cooking shouldn't upset you. Gardening shouldn't upset you, you know. And, and when it comes to golf, my God, there's so much, like, earthly elements and physical elements. And, and, and I might be physic, physical and physics and science and just the elements and then the mental aspect. And, oh, wait, are you tired? I mean, did you have, like, beef or pork for lunch? I mean, there's a lot of things that really factor into each one of us and our relationship, with, which, which is really just a hobby or a game for most of us. No, I agree, and I think that what's super cool about golf is that even if you don't have a great round, every golfer knows that the most thrilling part is that one moment where you do something great, and you may have to chase that moment for a while, but that one shot, that one chip, that one putt that does exactly what you wanted it to do, it keeps you coming back and I know every golfer I know says this I was interviewing Rick Riley and he says you know me and my old guy friends we can go out and hack it around and then have one great moment and that's all we want to talk about when we're having a beer at the clubhouse afterwards it's that moment and that moment is so romantic that we forget about all the junk and it makes us want to keep coming back and I think that's especially relevant about golf too I mean tennis is a social sport but you need an opponent. Oh, yeah. And even if you play an opponent and have one great shot in a round, you don't remember that if you got thumped 6 nothing. <laughs> you don't remember that. You just remember the thumping. But in golf, right. yeah, if I have one great drive, if I have one great putt, I do remember that more than all the other stuff. All the rest of it kind of melts away, and that's pretty romantic about golf, I think. That's a perfect word you picked there. Very romantic is a very, very perfect word. I mean... Kind of going back to what you said earlier about the integrity of the game, I'll be the first to say I'm not probably 100% the most honest or integritous person out there. Like, I'll say 95 to 99%. Like, like I, I can't really think of, like, ways where I'm dishonest, but I'm sure I'm not 100% honest, like, just like anyone else. But when it comes to golf, i got to admit, I've never really cheated at golf ever in my life because it's the one thing that I look at that cheating gets you nowhere. Cheating and cutting corners and everything kind of can get you to a certain place with the price or repercussions or maybe no validation if you're one of those uh, correct types of people. But ultimately in golf, if you cheat, let's just say let's just say you rolled that ball so it gave you a par instead of a bogey, unless you're O.J. Simpson and that level of sociopath driving home, you can't drive home and say, like, man, that par on number nine was good. It's like, no, because you literally know, only you especially know it wasn't a par. I mean... You have to be like Peter Kessler mad to like not really like put the blocks together. I mean, it's just one of the, and I look at it like, yeah, I'm a rational human being. I'm not an honest human being, but I'm a rational fucking human being, and that makes me not cheat at things that you don't need to cheat at. Well, and again, like most things with cheating, you're only cheating yourself, but I think especially in golf, you're only cheating yourself because, like you said, it's about trending, 
and the way you trend is you got to kind of start where you're at and then work on getting better and it doesn't always happen right away and sometimes you downtrend and then you got to uptrend but those that keep working at it usually get better and usually it doesn't take that long i mean like the, like we talk about these grinder guys if you go out every day and hit balls on a range you're going to figure your swing out pretty quick it won't take that long you hit a couple large buckets every day you're going to get better there's no doubt and you know, I, I'll use the baseball analogy. My son won a baseball championship with his little league team this year, and his swing, which had been so great and was still great in practice, just disappeared in games during the regular season. It just disappeared, and most of it was mental. He wasn't confident enough to swing because he's a lefty, and the pitchers were pitching him inside a lot, and not even meaning to. But you know, it's hard to pitch to lefties when you're kids. You don't and, know what to do, <laughs> and he's getting hit a lot, and it just started to freak him out. And so he stopped swinging and just kind of prayed for walks and his batting average dipped down to 130 by the end of the regular season. And he had pretty much fallen all the way to the bottom of the batting order, which is just shocking to us because he's so good at hitting. He's probably one of the top three or four hitters on the team yet here he's buried in the bottom of the lineup. And he was real distraught and was crying after a game. And I said to him, you know, there's two ways I can look at this. One, you don't practice besides the mandatory practices. You go to practices and then you show up at games. These other kids that are doing really well, I guarantee you they're working on it every day. So you can decide to work on it every day and then you should expect to be better and then I can understand why you're upset. Or just accept the fact that you're just going to go to practices and go to games because you're a child and that's fine. But then don't get upset if things don't go your way. Just own it. Just say, look, I'm just doing this for fun and you know, win, lose, draw, just give it the best I can. He goes, I really want to practice. I want to be great. I'm letting my team down. I want to help them. I go, okay. So over the course of the playoffs, which was about five weeks, we hit over a thousand balls in practice, Jerry. We went to the batting cages. We hit a thousand balls outside of his normal practices, which also ratcheted up. So he probably hit like 1500 balls during practice in the playoffs. Over the course of those playoffs, he raised his batting average from 130 to 270. That's good. That's right up, right up to where like the average for anyone is these days in terms of baseball. Right, and by definition of average, I guess. Right, and though he was not the best hitter at the end of the season, he surely helped his team win every one of those games with his big hitting contribution. Oh yeah, I mean that. that Bernie Bernie Williams didn't do squat in terms of lighting up the stat sheet, but he was a Yankee for 15 years because of all the moments postseason, uh, like you know, helping your team out and stuff like that. I mean, that's what. I'm a Dodger fan, and I hate the freaking Giants, but I always got to tip my captain because they have three more rings than us most recently, and Madison Bumgarner is one of the most phenomenal postseason pitching phenomenons I've ever seen. you got to give credit where credit is due. Who's your team in baseball? Dodgers, 100%. I love it. The Oregon guy pulling for Dodgers. I'm, I'm with it. Well, well, if we don't have the Portland Mavericks anymore, they, they folded in 77 way before my time, but I do own – Portland Mavericks hat, and they would be my team if they existed with uh, Bing Crosby and all those guys. But uh, if you do, are you familiar with Portland Mavericks? You got to be, right? Sure, sure. I mean, again, a little before my time too, but I remember all the romance about it. When I was a kid, they had the minor league team, the Beavers, and we go to be- I, I, Beaver games. Beaver games, yeah. I went to Beaver games in the early '90s up in Portland. Yeah, they were still kind of kicking around PG Park up there. The Beavers, and we had the Winter Hawks. That was our oh, for hockey. Yeah. For our hockey minor league team. The only major team we had in any sport was Blazers, but and everybody of course loved Blazers, but 
I'd say it was a basketball town, but we did pull for our beavers and baseball a little bit. I don't know. It, Oregon people, it's funny that you say you pull Dodgers. I feel like Oregonians have to make a choice. You either have to pull for the Washington teams up in Seattle, or you got to pull for California teams. Especially Bay Area. Yeah, it, that is kind of the pox. Because growing up here, we were literally 500 miles from the Seahawks and 500 miles from the Niners. And it was when the Niners were kind of cooling down a little bit. Montana and Young had kind of like decided a bit, and I was just like, I don't care about football. These teams are not close to me. I don't have any pride. And honestly, like full disclosure, when I was stationed out in Maryland when I was in the United States Coast Guard, that's when I became a Dodger fan, actually. It was just out of the blue. I No pun intended. It was like 2007. I was going to like <clears throat> dozens of Orioles games a year because tickets were cheap, and it was like, you know, $15 a ticket, $150 a beer. It was a great time. <laughs> but then... Well, 10 bucks a beer. They kind of gouge you. But what are you going to do? Anyways, they, um, I remember at one point, this is literally what made me be a Dodger fan was I kind of just in my head scanned all the baseball uniforms, made a top five, and the Dodgers were the best uniform in baseball. So I'm like, that's my squad. And ever since then, which is about, like, you know, 12 years ago, I've grown obsessed with baseball being, like, my second sport to golf. And I was, so it's like, who's my team? Effing Dodgers, baby. Like, I mean, I, I just watched uh, the Dodgers-Angels game almost to completion last night because they've been running late and I got old man soul. But uh, <laughs> I, mean, it's, uh, I definitely, much unlike my girlfriend who I just realized now, I think she has a third baseball team because she was saying, like, oh, I went to watch my Braves. They weren't on. I went to watch my Angels. They weren't on. Even the Cubs weren't on. I'm like, oh, my gosh. <laughs> and she'll admit, she's like, I only like that song at the end when they win. I'm like, I love that song, too, but you can go buy it on iTunes and listen to it when you want to. We don't have to support a third. Well, I, I've written about this for some other websites whose names I won't mention because we're on fromthebacktees.com. But I've talked about this bandwagon label and how if you're a diehard fan of your particular team, the most insulting thing is when somebody else comes off like they're just jumping on and off bandwagons. And I've yeah. definitely lost friendships over this over the years, which is just insane to me that people would actually hate someone enough because of this issue to stop being their friend. But I have lost friends over the years because they've been so insulted by the fact that it seems like I just kind of get enthused about one team and then another and another. Now, you've heard my story, Jerry. I was born in Portland. I moved to St. Louis, Missouri when I was 10. And then I moved to Los Angeles as a grown-up. And I've been in each city for over 10 years apiece. So by my logic, I have the right to root for any one of those places as home because home is where you've been for a long time, right? Pretty much? Sure, yeah. So I can root for Oregon, I can root for Missouri, I can root for L.A. But the other thing is, Missouri has this big deal about if you're from St. Louis, you don't root for Kansas City. And if you're from Kansas City, you don't root for St. Louis. So I'm from St. Louis. So now I, you know, on a bandwagon scale, it wouldn't be right for me to pull for KC. However, I had a girlfriend from Kansas City. I spent a lot of time up there when I was young. I went to Royals games. They were five bucks to get in, by the way. <laughs> oh, hell yeah. Kauffman Stadium? I heard great stories about that place. It's awesome. They'll let you come down and run the bases after the game, man. It's full access at that place. But I mean, it's like single A treatment. I love it. I was excited when the Royals won the World Series. 
I wasn't upset. There's no civil war in my heart. I do still pull for the Cardinals in baseball because I'm from there and I've been to a thousand Cardinal games and I was there when they won the World Series. Yeah, I, I like the Cardinals. I was really thrilled that the Blues won the Stanley Cup this year. That was exciting for me. I know how much the St. Louis fans and my friends and family have suffered with that hockey team forever. You know, I was excited about it. But when you're out here in L.A. and you say, oh, man, do you see the Blues one? They're like, what's wrong with you, bandwagon fan? St. Louis is the enemy. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, you know, here we go again, you know. Good Lord, wow. <laughs> so, I mean, I think, you know, what I get down to is this. Root for who you're going to root for. Your girlfriend shouldn't be ashamed. I really think, if anything, you, you can have a favorite team, but it's also good to appreciate greatness in all its forms, including the team that beat your favorite team, unless they're the Patriots, then they can go to hell. Very deliciously, ironically funny, because that leads me into a question I just came up with off the top of my head that I was going to ask you. You and I are both Lakers fans, as I know, but I'll admit, when the Celtics beat the Lakers back with the Big Three a few years ago, I wasn't entirely distraught. Granted, we were at the tail end of our great run, and, and it kind of dried up after that. But on one hand, I was like really excited to see Boston with a title, just because it's like, hey, it's Boston. Like This is where like titles go to sometimes. Like It's been a long time since the Green Machine, or whatever you want to call them, has like a, had a legit squad, and, and like that was their one title they won. I was kind of happy for them, even though, I mean, you know, being a Lakers fan, it's hard to, you know, boo-hoo for us. But. Yeah, that one was hard for me, mainly because Boston fans seem to be some of the most pervasively jerky fans to me, Seems both to in person and online. And... Time has definitely softened me on that big three team you mentioned. So, yeah, in hindsight, I think that was a cool team. I I don't have any animus towards them, even though they embarrassed the Lakers down the stretch. But what I remember is sitting in a dive bar in L.A. with predominantly Laker fans in this bar. And the Lakers are getting blown out by 40 points or whatnot in that final game. And this is a point where everybody in that bar, I'll tell you, Jerry, when it's obviously over, looks at each other and they say, well, it's sad, but hey, man, good for the Celtics anyway. You know, I mean, Kevin Garnett's deserved one for a long time, and Ray Allen's a great player, and Paul Pierce kind of a d- dick, but, you know, he's a good player. You know, I mean, Rondo, he's good. You know, we're, we're, we're starting to do the whole humility trip. And as we do this, two guys in Paul Pierce jerseys walk into the bar after it's over, going, fuck Kobe, you guys suck, Kobe Bryant sucks, and it's just like, these are Boston fans to me. <laughs> oh, these, oh, they weren't from Florida, they sound like they might have been from Tallahassee. <laughs> so, it's, it's, clam chowder on your head, yeah, it's just like, oh, I hate you guys. Every time the Patriots win, you throw the rings in my face, as if we don't know that you and the refs cheated to get every one of them, you guys, just stop it. <laughs> Settle down. I'm a Patriots apologist. So that's that, that what I was going to say earlier. Is I will support every bandwagon out there, but you won't see me on one. Like I will make, I will sell, I will advertise for bandwagons. Like like, like we were talking about on an earlier podcast uh, about a month ago or whatever. How I, I stick up for the Warriors all the time. Do I root for them? Do they make team? Hell no. I I could care less about the Warriors. But I, I like seeing greatness here or there, or whatever. And I like seeing people try to take down greatness and then make their own greatness. I mean, whatever. I'll give it up. This is right after the NBA Finals, but as much as you hear me smack talk the Warriors, it it shows you how great that team is that they lost four of their key players in that final series, and they still 
were right there with the Raptors to the very last play of that game. Oh, yes. Oh, yes, they were. That shows you the greatness of that team when they're playing with basically their backups and hobbled everybody minus Steph. And they still almost won that game and forced a game seven. They're special. They're special, man. They're they're one of the they're one of the greatest teams ever. And I'm glad that it probably is over. So that's good. So, but sticking on the greatest things ever theme, and uh, we'll try and lasso it back to golf here. Uh, you and I have never really got a dish about golf much, just in terms of your, like your personal favorites or whatever. But I mean, I got a couple questions for you here. Like, tell me some of your favorite golfers all time. It could be posthumous. It could be current. It doesn't matter. I mean, I feel like I got two Mount Rushmores for everything. One is all time, and one is current. And yeah, sometimes some people might sit on both of those mountains at the same time. But I mean, it's like a power ranking. Like maybe maybe the posthumous one shouldn't be so much of a power ranking unless like like a guy like Tiger Woods comes along and busts his head in there. But ultimately, I feel like any power ranking or current Mount Rushmore can be you know uh, fluid and fluctuating. So who do you like throughout the years in terms of golfers, international, American, or otherwise? Well, it's interesting because usually I seem to pull for underdogs or the colorful outcasts or whatnot, and I definitely have some of those for golf. I think as a kid, John Daly was obviously one of my favorites, and I still get a kick out of watching him play, even though he's obviously past his prime. He was a lot of fun just being that freakish guy out there that could do everything wrong and still pull it off or not. And then when he didn't, he'd go down in flames. That's pretty fun to watch. He's the closest thing we've ever had to Happy Gilmore out there on the tour to me. But I'd say beyond just entertainment value like a daily, when I look at the past and the present, there are obvious ones. Arnold Palmer was always somebody I was reverential of, even though I wasn't alive to see him in his, in his prime at all. But I was reverential of his history and of just how wonderful he was as a gentleman for the game. So I've always kind of rooted for him, even when he was older. Uh, I'd say Jack Nicholas was never somebody I was that enamored with, but I can surely respect what he's done for the game. Out of that era, I really liked Tom Watson and was really thrilled when he almost won that Open where he lost in the playoff to Sink. Oh, yeah. Mr. Nice Guy, Stuart Stuart Sink, like the... uh the reigning president of like uh, PGA Tour player relations or whatever, like Mr. Nice Guy. I love Stu. I've, I've talked to him on more than one occasion personally, even though he doesn't know who I am. But that's how nice the guy is. He even stood there and had to be the villain. Like he couldn't, he couldn't take a fall or step aside. It's like, well, I'm a competitor too. And he had to go beat Tom Watson, the poor guy. Yeah, and that's, that's an unfortuitous position to be in for Stu. But what a great open having Tom at 60 still playing well. That was just exciting, and, and Tom's a Kansas City guy and, you know, Missouri legend, and it was just cool to, to, to get to watch that with my own eyes and then obviously knowing his legacy. I'd say, you know, out of that older era, Lee Trevino is obviously a really fun guy to read about and, and still is a great representative for the game. And I'll go, you know, you asked international. Obviously, the legend of Seve Ballesteros is amazing, and seeing some of that footage of him is amazing. So he's a fun guy to kind of read about and go back and watch in hindsight. But um, I'd say, you know, out of this modern era, Tiger so obviously dominated my attention as well as everyone else's. I watch golf tournaments often, Jerry, where it's like Tiger swings, see where the ball goes, fast forward to the next time he swings. Like I'm watching the other guys at like, you know, two, two up on the speed on the, on, the, on the game. You know, I'm seeing where their balls go, but I'm not stopping and watching their whole setup and delivery. 
I, you know, I, I love Phil Mickelson. He's fun to watch. Obviously, another popular guy that's easy to root for. Uh, early on, I got really into Bubba. So I'd say he's someone I'm always pulling for. And Bubba's kind of yeah. like a John Daly, where yeah, he's John Daly with more wins. But, you know, colorful, quirky, iconoclastic. A lot of people don't like him. A lot of people love to see him fail. A lot of people are critical of his personal beliefs. All of that makes me love him more. All of the contradictions. Being this real outspoken Christian who acts so unchristian often on the golf course, it just cracks me up, and I get a kick out of it. You know, I, I think Bubba is – he's fun for the game. You know, the fact that he plays this crazy hook, that he wears the peacockish clothes, the pink driver, the, the yellow ball – Everything about him is meant to stick out, yet he still does really well. And he's got two majors and, you know, 11 wins. He really really doesn't have much of a voice, honestly. Like, we know a ton about Bubba Watson, Watson, but until I saw the, uh, or heard the Barstool Sports interview with him and uh, Ted as caddy, like, I learned a little bit more about him. But, I mean, yeah, Bubba's definitely one of my favorites. Like, you can tell me, uh, like, give me a a Matt Kuchar-related style story to Bubba tomorrow, and I'm just like, well, that, you know what, here, I'm a fan of his because I, I, I will not... I'm not going to change my opinion on Bubba Watson. I mean, it, it, there's personally nothing wrong with him. He's an artiste. It's, in a game where it's like if we're supposed to hit the ball straight and it seems so easy and we don't, he, I, like somebody said on the golf course yesterday, it's like, I don't think Bubba Watson's ever hit a straight shot in his life. It's just like, does he, does he want to? Does he have to? No. That's style. Only time he hits a straight shot is by accident, which I think is just phenomenal. <laughs> that, you know what? And that, yeah, that is a complete opposite backwards approach to golf. But, I mean, that's... Uh, that's uh, something I do uh, do appreciate. Something you just mentioned, though, not, not that we're like going back to check the errors here, but Daly doesn't have more wins over Bubba. They have the same amount of majors, and Bubba's got like uh, eight more tour wins than Daly. Daly only won, not counting his majors, I think one or two tour events. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, I, I mean, I knew they had the same number of majors, but Bubba is a more successful version of Daly, right? Pretty much. Well, now, see, I mean, I, I think we're literally comparing, like, the most apples and oranges here, because Daly didn't have much success, you know, a couple lightnings in a bottle, great story. Then we got Bubba, who has, like, 10, maybe 11 PGA Tour victories, two majors, but the trouble is, they're all on three courses. They're at Riviera, they're at Augusta, and they're at some damn place in Connecticut, I forget, but it's like, um, 99% of his victories are on the same track. Travelers Championship, he's got three there. Yeah, yeah, that's it. So, I mean, it's like, good for him. I'm totally happy that he does this. But he's built a Hall of Fame PGA resume basically off of being a stellar lefty who, like, plays certain courses, which a lot of guys might cry unfair, but, I mean, I, I don't. Well, when you got two masters, it's hard to argue with that. And the one that he beat Oosthuizen in where he hit the hook out of the woods, that's got to be one of the top masters of the last 20 years, right? Yeah. Yeah, it was, uh, that, was, uh, that was big, because I remember I was pulling for him, and when he went into the trees, I thought, how in the hell? Like, I was sitting there going, like, everyone finds a hole out. Everyone still, like, finds a, a view out of the trees, and, like, somebody, everyone pulls off a shot. It can't happen a hundred times in a row when we're watching on Sunday, and sure enough, it did, and I'm just like, good grief. I mean, these next-level players, these guys. I mean, it's just it's good stuff. Well, and also, the other thing about Bubba, before I totally let Bubba go, is that all these players show emotion so much and you know you obviously see when they're frustrated or upset and having meltdowns but bubba also shows all of the the emotion when he when he does well he he, oh, yeah. he cries and sobs and talks about how much he loves his mama and his daddy and his wife and his kids and and his savior jesus oh, yeah. christ and all this i mean i love that about him i know people can say that that's fake but that's not fake 
what's fake is when he's trying to act cool or suave or whatever. That's that's the that's that's the put on Bubba. When you see that, that's the real hard on the sleeve guy, and I love that guy. Yeah, that's the guy I'm rooting for. It reminds me a lot like what uh, Zach got out of uh, when I when he asked my uh, question to Kip Henley or whatever, where it's like you can call certain people a lot of things, but when it really gets down to the boilerplate about who they're about, like I've seen Kip Henley be called every every terrible thing under the sun, and I'll admit, as a third-party observer, maybe half of those things have a chance of sticking. Maybe. Like, maybe we really have to go through some tweets and some things to figure out if he's contradicting himself. But deep down, when I had Zach ask him, uh, who would you be the president of any fan club or whatever, and he said, like, uh, Team Henley, Family Henley, Henley. And I'm just like, that's exactly what I knew he would say, and it's exactly the best answer any human being could and should give, because it just shows you, like, that, that people care about the safety and sanctity of their community and their family and wholesomeness. And that's really, in the end, what it should be about. doesn't matter if you live in a city or on a farm. doesn't matter if you live in Russia or in Canada. It's like It really is about, like, our fellow human beings being unified with each other. Not saying we have to share the same interests or likes. It's just, just like, it, and it's not even just a matter of, like, putting up with each other. It's like, no, we, we breathe the same air and we talk different languages, but we're the only one of the few species that talks to each other. Let's just get along a little bit. It's not that big a deal. I agree, and I think that's also why golf is so special, again, compared to a lot of other sports, is that you see the family element represented. And sure, again, if you're critical, you could say that it seems like a marketing tool, and maybe it is for some of them, but I just see too much authenticity with how much people genuinely include their families in their success. And how much the PGA markets to families. And I love that about it. I think it's special every time that you see somebody win and see their wife or mom or dad or children coming out to hug them when they win. That was, it's wonderful. It never, it never ceases to melt me when Shane Lowry's wife and daughter come oh. out there and embrace him. Or Gary Woodland's mom and dad are out there hugging him. Or whoever. You know, it's always special, man. Seeing Tiger hugging his son after he finally got that Masters win after all those years of suffering. That's a beautiful moment, man. Or even, even Ricky with his, like, uh, model du jour or whatever. Like, you know what this really, I'm just thinking of this notion off the top of my head, but it means something. Everybody listen up. Support systems breed success. Now, if you're looking around and you don't have a support system, that probably is your fault. I mean, I can say the same for myself. I got a very small social circle, and I always look at myself and be like, well, that's on me. That's because I keep a few people galvanized, and that's about it or whatever. But, I mean, even Ricky, who, who is, like, the most eligible bachelor on tour at all times or whatever, his girlfriend or, like, arm candy of the week is right out there on the 18th screen. All the way down to, like, the least amount of family is still a support system. There's, of course, when they're celebrating, wrapping their arms around you on 18, it's just like, yeah, they're probably getting, like, a new car or something. I mean, who knows? Because that's, that's a lot of bread that's uh, coming off that hole. But still, I mean, it's, it, everyone is supporting of each other, even though one person is really out there doing all the executing. I mean, that's why the word team, team comes into play. Well, and you mentioned Ricky. That was the one other guy I wanted to bring up. And, again, obviously a popular guy that a lot of people pull for. But I've been pulling for Rick from the beginning. And sure, some of it had to do with the alternative way that he presents himself with the style and fashion and used to be the long hair and the wild-looking Puma outfits and etc. But what I really like about Ricky is the fact that he is the most stoic golfer. I mean, Jerry, can you ever remember a time when you've seen Ricky lose his shit because things haven't no. been going his way. Can you ever remember that? I can't. He had he had every reason to down in Phoenix this year with that stupid ass penalty where he dropped the ball and then he walked away and it rolled away or whatever. He, 
he almost handled that with the poise of a stand-up comic, where it's just like, all you have to do is cut a joke, and he would have been Freddy Couples 2.0 all over again, where it's just like, you're Mr. Cool, I don't care if you don't win a major, which, by the way, Freddy only has one major, I'm I'm, I'm making this big list of players that have one major and how much we revere them. It's like Jim Furyk, Dustin Johnson. It's like, hey, a lot of these guys might die with one freaking major, okay? So we got to really reevaluate what we, how we endear these people. But, I mean, Ricky, my God, I love him just because I'm just now opening my eyes to be like, this guy's still around. This guy's still relevant. He's playing better golf. I used to call him the 54-hole player. Now, then I used to call him the 63-hole player. He's about to become the 72-hole player. Not to mention, in a very Arnold Palmer-esque way, he is the most marketable American golfer now and the past 10 years. I mean, I know Anthony Kim somewhere snapping a golf pencil, but he needs to come out of goddamn retirement to, like, make us all swoon again. But other than Tiger Woods, Anthony Kim, Ricky Fowler, bleeds swagger. I mean, Dustin Johnson does it, but DJ does it as, like, the tallest guy in the locker room or, like, the guy who, like, has the most muscles or something. Like, he's just a thoroughbred. But Ricky, like, dresses and acts the part, too. He is a stud and a class act. That's it. And he shows appropriate emotion when he doesn't do well, when he lost the Phoenix Open the, the, the time before he finally closed it, and he's crying because his grandfather came to see him, and he just felt oh, disappointed. Yeah. Man, all that does is make my heart go out to the kid because he never throws a fit on the course. He never gets too high or too low on the course. You see he's just built to be stoic about everything out on the course. But he's still got a heart, and he's still a decent guy. And sure, he may date supermodels or whatever, but again, I think most people admire that about him too. Gosh, you're living the dream, young man. You, you've, you've made it. You're the, you're the guy that's on every TV commercial in between the tournament, whether you're doing well or not. You know, I mean, he's, you're right. He is a lot of uh, kind of that Arnold Palmer, not maybe the best guy on tour, but surely the best character guy on tour. You can see it in them. We got Arnie's army. We need to call it like Ricky's recon forces or something. I don't know. I do think he's going to win a major or two or maybe even more. I don't think that he's going to go down as the, you know, the most talented guy to not win a major. And everybody's debating who that is right now. And Kuchar comes no, on that well, list. They, they shouldn't debate it. It's Colin Montgomery, hands down. Because if, if no, nobody else can come out of the dust. Uh, the, like, I think Matt Kuchar is the best player without a major, but he can still win one, maybe. He's got a five-year window. Colin Montgomery is retired and on the in, in the dustbin, and he's not going to win another major, and therefore he's the best player without a major. I'm, I'm, I'm about to put my flag in it. I'd say Montgomery's a good choice. Lee Westwood being so close again this year at the Open and not getting it done. He's up on that list still. You know, Cooch, uh, young guys, I think Tony Finau and Tommy Fleetwood come to mind as being really good guys we know can cl- could close but haven't. I mean, who else? I'd say Ricky's right there on that list, man. Well, this will this will be a quick segue and a nice segue into um – we're, we might have to do a part two because you and I got some good uh, golf topics we want to talk about another time. But uh, I wanted this to be more of a, a get to know Tucker booth and also keep it current events here. You were talking about uh, Shane Lowry a little bit. And we were talking about the support system and family. I just saw a great video, a little uh, vignette of an interview from uh, Shane Lowry's grandmother. She was uh, she's a delight. Uh, how did you enjoy the British Open? Port Rush, first time since 1951. What was your takeaway? I think Ireland was the biggest star of the weekend. The course obviously was part of that, but I think it was the Irish setting and the Irish fans that were the biggest stars of that weekend to me. Every tournament, every major specifically, you worry that the fans are going to act like total jackasses 
And I think if you look at PGA up at Bethpage, they did act like jackasses. Yeah. You know, and even U.S. Open at Pebble, there was a jackass vibe in the air. It may not have been as bad as Bethpage, but it was in the air. And when you get to the first Open in Ireland in, what, 60 years or so, and you got Irish fans... And you know there's also this kind of bubbling tension between Northern Ireland, where they're having it, and then the rest of Ireland. Yeah. Alcohol's involved. You're just wondering if all hell's going to break loose. You know, this humongous draw, what, like 240,000 people at this thing. So I was worried coming in that the Irish were going to be especially obnoxious. I got to say, Jerry, every day I watched it, and every day I thought the fans were phenomenal. They were, yeah, they were top shelf. As, as, as we would hope. They were rooting for everybody. They obviously had their Irish guys that they were especially passionate for, but I think they did a great job of really rooting for everyone's success. And I think that, obviously, the takeaway is Rory McIlroy is the biggest loser here, right? Because he had all the hype on him going in. He has the most horrifying first round that a favorite could have. And then he still puts on this heroic charge on the second day and comes up one shot short. And then has to sit after missing the cut and watch the other Irishman. In fact, the one no one thought. I think everybody, if you were picking a second Irishman, would have picked Graham McDowell or something. Here comes the, the underdog Irishman, Shane Lowry. The, the uh, European Charlie Hoffman, as I call them. Right. And he captures all of their hearts and minds instantly. And rides the momentum all the way to the championship. Didn't choke. Like he, he had a little waiver on the front nine of the uh, in the fourth round, where I thought, well, maybe this is where a slide could start. But I mean, no, it was uh, it was uh, as I told Nolan, uh, the, all the woods are in second, third place. And none of them were named Eldrick. They, that kind of pissed him off. But I mean, <laughs> Fleetwood, there's Westwood. Which, by the way, Lee Westwood, yeah, he still could be the best player without a major. He still could win a major. I can't believe I'm saying that because he's probably my least favorite golfer next to Jason Day that I like to make fun of, except I like Jason Day. I don't like Lee Westwood. Me and Jeff Martin get to debates all the time on Twitter about how the traditional golf ring should be constructed, and he is one of, like, 14 past, like, major champions or whatever that, like, shorten out of an impact when they hit, and I just look at that going, like, that's, that's like making one of your tires square in your car. It's just, no, it just doesn't work that way. And again, what works in golf? Golf is artistic, not scientific. That's the way it should be approached. Yeah, I agree. He's not that fun to watch. Neither is Jason Day. They both kind of have that paint-drying vibe to them when they're out there. I don't think either one of them are necessarily bad dudes, but I don't enjoy watching them play. I'm with you. I mean, what we forgot about Jason Day, though, is like I feel like there's a curse of the PGA Championship here because Jason Day should be a multiple major winner, at least three majors. He wasn't the inventor of the bomb and gouger, but I'll be the first to say it. Or, I mean, I'm not. maybe I'm not the first to say it. He was the first because he would just hit the living piss out of the ball, and then go find it somewhere. It wasn't DJ. Like, DJ's a very formulaic, one-dimensional golfer who's just now shedding all his misses. I mean, and like, and actually like playing better course management. Dustin Johnson's not a bob and gouger. He's a very, very tactically like, like oriented player who hits his big drives to very specific places, just so long as he's accurate. He's never, he's not like Kepka or Rory, where it's just like, ooh, but if I see that slot on the left, if I can hit a draw here... Or whatever, it's just usually they're just, he's like, DJ's like, nope, tall fade, nope, tall fade, that's what I hit the best, 310 yards, tall fade. It's like, yeah, that's what works for him. But, uh, but, but Jason Day, my God, I, I, I was so scared of him for 10 years, 
thinking this guy could win all the majors and none of our guys or our favorites could win. And now, and lo and behold, he's only won one. So now I kind of like to sit back and chuckle and be like, oh, Jason Day, you're that guy who like has all these muscles and can't even lift 50 pounds. I'm not scared of you. So, I mean, and Lee Westwood, he's actually like Darth Vader, where it's just like, oh, I like Darth Vader, but he's the enemy. I can't, I can't support him. I think Day is one of these guys that really struggled because of injury. You know, his back is such a huge kryptonite kind of crippling thing with him. I think if he hadn't had as many injury issues, he probably would have won more majors. And he had vertigo, like about a vertigo in one tournament. I mean, once I saw him go down because of that, I thought, then I started shifting my gears going like, Jason Day is the most unlucky golfer ever because he's in the midst of competing and his body is failing him in random ways, not like terrible ways, just wouldn't the last word you want your doctor to hear you hear him say is random? <laughs> like that's the last thing you want to hear when it comes to your body. I mean, yeah. Although if you look at being number one in the world at one point in your life and still not having any majors, that's Lee Westwood, that's Luke Donald, guys like them. Yeah. That's got to feel more disappointing than Jason Day's career arc. He he won five tourneys in a year one year. I mean, well, you're you know, absolutely right. Yeah. He's had a pretty good run. Yeah, if he goes down with one major, he might think there were uh, more than a few that got away. But he's won a lot of tournaments. He's won a ton of money. Got a gorgeous wife and beautiful kids. He was number one in the world. He's still competitive. I don't know. That seems like a pretty good career compared to Westwood or Donald, who actually sat at number one in the world and still nobody thinks is going to win a major. Oh, good point. I would absolutely take Jason Day's career over many of those guys. And I'm glad you happened to bring this up, another quick tangent, but this is at least related to golf. I'm staring at my old handwritten notes from six months ago on this article I've been really working on for a long time, but my word processor failed for the website about the best player without a major. And I'm looking at pages here where I got, behind Colin Montgomery, it's just in the European category, Lee Westwood is number two, and I have, like, he has two PJ Tour wins, 24 wins on the European Tour, four in Japan, nine on the Asian Tour, three on the Sunshine Tour, one other, like, on a different tour. He's, he's got all, he's, and he's actually Westwood, as we saw um, recently, trending in the majors. But then I got Luke Donald as number three right behind him. I think I had, like, the other ones rounding it out were um, KJ Choi and Ian Poulter. I think were my, uh, those, like, that was my, my international, even though I threw um, KJ Choi in there, so it's not European anymore. But that, that was it. It was Colin Montgomery. Um, what I have here? Lee Westwood. Um, Luke Donald, then it went KJ Troy, Ian Poulter. Those are my five international best players without a major. And that, to me, I couldn't think. I'm like, well, who else buds in there? Who else? Like, Ian Poulter is a stalwart. He's a pretty good player, maybe a potential Hall of Famer without winning a major. But Yeah, Poulter always seems to be right in the mix at these big tourneys, at the majors, and yet he never gets it done. He always seems to come up just short in the majors, and he's won lots of tourneys, so he definitely qualifies as someone who's been very successful and a Ryder Cup legend for Europe. He's definitely one of their gods of the Ryder Cup. So I'd say he's had a Hall of Fame career just off Ryder Cup alone. Oh, sure. But you're right. I think he's definitely unfulfilled potential when even this year at the Masters, he was right there in the pack with all those guys at the end, and he he didn't get it done. I mean, it's still happening for him, and who knows? I guess he's young enough. He maybe could still steal one before everything's said and done. But if I were Ian Poulter and I finally did win a Masters, I would retire the day after that. Let that be the last thing people remember about you. Just go down as that guy. Took me my whole career. Finally got it. I'm out. See you later. I'm going to go drive my Lamborghini. I'm leaving. See ya. That's, uh, that's, that's pretty astute. I like that. Um, Ian Poulter definitely, I think he ranks pretty high on like, the money-earning list, too, so to speak, but 
all if Ian Poulter wants to win a major, all he has to do is pretend he's about to lose his tour card. Because when that happened about a year and a half ago, it, I've never seen anyone in like a mental capacity put a own gun to their head and said, "You need to start hitting it close to the hole, otherwise you lost your card." And Ian Poulter went from the woods to inches from the hole on every single hole. And I thought, now you can dial that up. Like that was a literal thing, but your body went through it. Can you try and pretend or manufacture or try and remanufacture that adrenaline or whatever it was to make you like get the eye of the tiger that we've ever seen before? I mean, the most of, I mean, we know it's in you. We've seen it now. Do you just have to be one of those guys where your nuts have to be on the line in order for you to like drop the machete properly? I mean, I think that's the biggest problem with the tour now versus the tour back in the olden times is that the purses are so large that even if you take 60th place, you still clear this huge check that's a year's salary for a poor person. And you got it in one cut. You just have to make the cut and not finish dead last and you made enough money that a poor person could live on for a year it's hard to keep caring about winning when you know just playing well enough to make the cut and you're surely going to stay you know up in the chips i also think yeah the only time these guys really feel the heat is when they think they're going to lose their tour card and that money making opportunity disappears it goes bye-bye, yeah. I think it's like every sport. You sign the big contract, you win the big one, then you have to find new motivation because now motivation to just be successful or have enough money and security to be able to retire comfortably, that goes away. You know you're marketable. Once you've won a Super Bowl, you know you can always go and get an endorsement deal with Wheaties or whatever. It's not that hard. It's why do I care anymore? What drives Tom Brady to win seven rings or whatever? When he's old and has already done everything there is to do. What drove Michael Jordan to be so successful? You know, why did Jack Nicholas still care so much at 46? Those are the questions. Why is Tiger still out there when he's so obviously physically annihilated? Why is he still doing this to himself? I mean, that takes a special kind of guy. Why did Kobe Bryant go and limp around out there for the last couple years of his career when everybody knew he was toast physically? Why would he do that? Yeah. I think it's just a different kind of animal, and that animal is about winning matters to me, competing matters to me, passion for this sport, but not just for the sport, but for winning at this sport is what drives me and fuels me in my heart. And I don't know if that's necessarily healthy or not, but I think it's more exciting for the fans to watch. Well, it's also damn near necessary because I just uh, heard an interview with Rory or whatever how he was saying, like, I was trying to treat the majors like any other tournament and that was a mistake. It's like, yeah, bud, that is a mistake because look at you and Brooks Kepka. You guys are taking a polar opposite different view in the majors and it's working for one of you guys. I mean, I appreciate you trying things, Rory, but, I mean, you gotta you got to take it seriously. And I'm, I'm glad you kind of said that in terms of, like, uh, how people go into the twilight for their careers or whatever when they have such a, like, what is an alpha's alpha, so to speak. I want to close out our interview today. Well, not interview. You and I, we're just, we're colleagues. We're just bullshitting here. But uh, I, I have this great debate question that the more I ask it, the more I really realize that either my opinion is like on an island by itself or it really makes people think. But it's a two-pronged question, and I like the second prong better. First one, and I'll kind of glaze over to get the second one. Do you sincerely think Tiger Woods will play on the Champions Tour at all? I say no, quickly, because that gets to the next question. Do you think Phil Mickelson will? And I say that's an even bigger no, because Tiger's going to, in my opinion, going to go into politics or God forbid or something. He's, gonna, he's, he's meant for something bigger. He could be an astronaut or a Navy SEAL still. I don't know. But Phil Mickelson, everyone I talk to seems to think Phil Mickelson's going to tear it up on the Champions Tour. I think Phil Mickelson's way above the Champions Tour. Like, he's not going to waste, that's only a couple years away. If he still thinks he's going to compete, he's going to 
I think Phil is more likely to play on the Champions Tour than Tiger to me. I think that's because to Tiger, that's like handicap golf. Yeah, yeah. And he only wants the big ones that matter in the history books. I, I've said it all along. I'm sure Nolan would echo me on this. Tiger's got two goals left on his check sheet. He's got to beat Sam Snead's 82 wins, and he's close. He just has to win two more. That is, that's imminent, yeah. And it doesn't matter what he wins to get those two wins. He just has to win two tournaments. He could win the Valspar Championship twice. It doesn't matter. He just needs to win two more champions or two more titles of any kind, and he's got the all-time wins record. That secures right. <laughs> he can win the Rocket Mortgage Championship. It doesn't matter, dude. Two more wins, and it's done. But that's not enough because he knows that though he'll have the all-time wins record, which surely puts him in the debate for greatest of all time, it does not secure the debate for greatest of all time. And we know where we're going here. He's got to win the most majors. And that one's going to be harder than winning two more tournaments. In fact, I'm sure he's thinking, I should just win four more majors and that'll get me my 83 wins and I'll get the all-time majors record. Like I was say, that's the only way he could do it. He could win two more times. There'll probably be majors, and he would still not beat that, uh, Jack, but he'll lose to a. Uh, he'll beat Sam, but he'll lose to Jack. <laughs> and 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 all the Jack fans, and there's so many of them on Twitter. I know you see them. They won't accept anything. Even if he beat Jack's majors record, they'd still say, "Well, Jack had more second places." I mean, they would always have some excuse. But of course. There's- there's minutiae behind the minutiae every time. But the, but you know how it goes. It's all about who has the most championship titles. That's it. And Tiger's got it with 83 wins over Jack's 72 or 71, whatever it is. He's definitely got the most overall titles. But then major titles becomes that last thing because we know in golf, especially in tennis, these two sports, majors mean so much more than just any old other tournament. So he's got to get that record. If he gets that record, nobody has a legit debate anymore. He's got the most wins overall, and he's got the most majors overall. Jack, you could have the most second places, and all Tiger would say is second place sucks, and he'd be right. He'd pull the Ricky Bobby card on him in a heartbeat, absolutely. But listen, like I appreciate you're a Tiger boy. I want to bring it back to Phil real quick again, because I just thought of a great analogy here in terms of the reason why I say Tiger won't play on the Champions Tour is because he's probably going to, like, when his body finally betrays him or he turns 50 or, he, or, or when he just stops golfing in majors, he'll probably move on to bigger, better things, ventures, whatever. Phil, I feel like his ego won't let him play on the Champions Tour. Picture this. How would Scott McCarron do on the PGA Tour right now, teeing it up every now and again or in the majors? He'd get crushed. I I really don't know. (laughs) He'd get crushed, man. He he, he admits it himself. He's too creaky and he's too achy. I I don't think he'd get crushed. Well, I mean, I've always loved Scotty McCarron as a golfer when he was on the regular tour, and and I love seeing him clean up on the Champions. I just, for some reason, there's something that's sticking in my craw that I want to, like, go to Vegas and find a prop that says Phil Mickelson will never play in a Champions Tour event and be like, what are my odds? Because I will, I, I really think that's a theory I want to run down the, the pipe all the way, which is, because I just, I look at it, I know Phil personally, uh, he doesn't know me, he doesn't remember me at all, but I know him personally enough where I just be like, Phil would never play with play senior softball. Like, he would still try to play hardball baseball if he think he could, and if he think he didn't, he would go play tennis. He, he just wouldn't, like, uh, it, it, it's beneath him, so to speak, when I'm trying to think, when it comes to golf, nothing should be beneath anybody. Like, it is the most, going back to what we were saying earlier, it's humbling. It's one of the most humbling, emasculating sports full of machismo when none of us need it. And I just feel like this could be something that's obviously 
still has to be put in a pine box and into the ground before we have our final answer. But I just really feel like, why would Phil, what does he have to gain from playing in the Champions Tour? Well, you make a compelling argument, and I'd say you, you're starting to persuade me. If I'm making the counter argument, I would say Phil and Tiger both have a lot of charisma, and they surely could go into other business ventures, politics, or anything else. You know, they both they both have shrewd financial minds. I'm sure they could, you know, keep playing the stock market or whatever. Venture capitalists like Kobe. But it's Phil in particular. There's this need to be liked more than Tiger. Tiger has spent most of his career kind of intentionally alienating himself from the others in order to get an edge on them. Phil, on the other hand, is the people's champ. You know, maybe not everybody on the tour loves him, but he surely has a decent rep. I'd say Phil has this need, like a lot of us do, to be liked. And I think that if he gets done with playing on the PGA and he's still trying to compete for majors in his 50s and early 60s like a Watson, and I imagine he will, yeah. I think there's going to come a time where he realizes, I probably can't win any more majors if I you know, ever believed that in the last 10 years. Maybe I ought to go win a couple senior majors just to add to the record book and also to get some buddy-buddy time with my fellow you know, guys my age and the fans. I think he might go back to soak up the adulation, whereas I agree with you. I think Tiger in particular, he doesn't need that on the senior tour. He doesn't need that at all. I think he'd probably be just as happy on his own. I'm just trying to bump fill up that echelon that only Tiger belongs in in terms of that conversation, which we can make an easy, like, uh, you know, uh, not necessarily assumption, but like conclusion in terms of who's going to do what for a career, so to speak. But that's, that's why I'm looking at going like, these seem like real long odds that Phil might not play on the Champions Tour ever, but I'm sticking to it that it'd be like, eh, but I'd like to see those odds. I just really would. Well, I'll give so, it up. Uh, I think you make a good case, Jerry, and I think both of them are so so popular that maybe they become team owners in other sports. Couldn't you see that? Like LeBron's already talking about owning an NBA team. Couldn't you see Tiger and Phil owning a football team or something? Sounds about right. Oh, but but I, I'm, I hate that you brought up LeBron. I wish he would just really focus on basketball, regardless of <laughs> his age or his, his body or whatever. I know why he moved to L.A. I know all the things he wants to do. But LeBron, I'm a Laker fan. Will you please just do your job, like the first thing that we, we, we paid you for? That's all. I mean, I'm not saying he isn't. It's just like, I, I, maybe I was expecting two greatest things last year, and I need to temper those expectations and, like, what materializes around him. But I, I look at it as like, LeBron, let's just, how about we just, you're, LeBron and I are almost the same goddamn age. Like, we're within months apart. You have time to spend your millions on any other ventures. Please play basketball for, like, just six more years. Just solid, please. That's, that's all we have. Well, the good news is is that even though we didn't nab Kawhi and surely win a championship before the season started, I think this is the squad, man. They got all these good players to put around him and Anthony Davis. I really like their lineup this year. I, they got a great lineup, man. They, they, they kept Kyle Kuzma. He's a great player. Danny Green just won a championship. He's a great role player. Boogie Cousins got a lot to prove. You know, we're still... We got Boogie this year. That's fun. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot to like about this Lakers team. They're the odds-on favorite in Vegas to win it right now anyway, and anybody that lives in L.A. should be excited about the Clippers, too. I was telling my son, he was like, Dad, I want to go see games this year, and I'm like, we need to go see Lakers-Clippers. That game's going to be phenomenal. Ooh, let me let me know privately off the air whenever, if you get tickets that, how much those tickets cost. You got to come up, Jerry. You can stay in the guest room. You can go with me, man. That, how good is that game going to be? That's going to be a, a monster game this year. You know what the second week in 
include this. I'm gonna I'm gonna go look at the schedule, see uh, see what's going on for the season because my girl has a lot of family down in Southern California, and we make more trips down there than I care to schedule. But I go along with them all. So we yeah, we'll definitely need to reconnoiter on that. All right, man. Well, okay. I got I got a couple shout outs before we end this thing. I definitely want to shout out Zach. Yeah, hold on a second. Uh, while you're giving your shout-outs, whatever, cue up that highway in the danger zone for us to go out on. Oh, I got it. I got it. Oh, I got something even better, Jerry. <laughs> well, we're just, we're just a little over an hour, and I was going to say, Tucker, plug away. What can we hear you on, find you on, see you on, et cetera, so forth? Well, I got to give shout-outs to Zach. I hope you and your fam are having a great trip over in Europe. While the editor is away, the minions will play, and that's what we're going to do. Stay dialed in. We'll probably do another one next week, Jerry. We got to get another one in after the FedEx St. Jude. Oh, by the way, who you got winning that before we, we end this thing? Who's your pick? Filibuster mm, uh, for 45 seconds. I'll get back to you. All right. <laughs> I'd say my pick for FedEx St. Jude – I'm going to go with a long shot here. If I'm going straight dark horse, I'm saying Andrew Putnam. That's my dark, dark horse. Is that really dark, though? I mean... He played pretty well at the Open, I guess, so maybe not that dark. But how about obvious underdog? I'll say Andrew Putnam. If we're going overdog, I like Bubba Watson this week. I'm just saying it again. Bubba Watson, he's due. I'm sorry, go ahead. But that's it. I think he's due. I think Bubba's had a, a not great year, but he's played decent. He's a winner. This is a course that I think he'll do all right on. He loves stuff like the St. Jude Children's Hospital. I think he's going to dig deep in his guts and win this one. Interesting, because uh, in my, my machine here, I got Putnam ahead of Watson. I got Putnam finishing 25th and Watson 27th, and defending Open Champion Shane Lowry in between. That's just how, that's just how I'm looking at it. Who you got winning it? I, you know what? I think I'm going to jump on the Adam Scott train, really. I mean, it's... Uh, I keep picking him to win majors, and he keeps doing pretty good. But part of me is just like, wait, what if I just like poach that one PGA event that he uh, that he takes away or whatever, like all of the Players Championship years ago? That'd be a lot of fun. I hear you. All right, so I'll, I'll do my I'll do my final plugs here. I got other bloggers online. I got to give love to Rory Mitchell and the Mitchell Report out of Canada. A eh? love you, Rory. You have always been extremely good to me, and he also is a big supporter of From the Back Tees. So definitely check out the Mitchell Report, you guys. It's wonderful. All kinds of sports analysis. Really good stuff. I'm writing it down right now. The Mitchell Report. You can find him on Twitter, especially, but he's on all networks. Um, I also got to give love to Florence Carmella. She has a website, florencecarmella.com. That's C-A-R-M-E-L-A, florencecarmella.com. She featured me on there. She's got all kinds of great features of entertainers, celebrities. She's getting big names, a lot bigger than mine now, big people. Uh, Check out Florence Carmella, really, really wonderful lady out of the East Coast. She's up in Connecticut. And I've got to give love to Rude Dog Reyes, my buddy Rudy Reyes. He's uh, on Twitter at Rude, Rude Dog Reyes handle and the Show.com. Rudy just got married, so congratulations to you, Rudy. That's a lot bigger oh, deal than anything. You know, good on you, man. And also my record label, Tantrum Niche Records. You can find us online at Tantrum, like a temper tantrum, niche, N-I-C-H-E, tantrumniche.com. Every album on there is 100% free to download, you guys. We give it all away for free. If you'd like to donate, there is a PayPal link on there, but we're doing it Radiohead style. We'd rather that you hear the music than quibble with you about money. Every single album on there, including my stuff, is free. So check out tantrumniche.com. And I think that's about it. I was going to say check out From the Back Tees, but you all know where you're at. (laughs) 
yeah, that's uh, that's pretty much all my plugs. Like you've probably heard our podcast before. You can just find me at Jerry Lou Looper One on Twitter, and you can find Tucker at Tucker Dale Booth on Twitter, or the Tucker D Booth. Tucker Dale Booth on Twitter and Instagram. I do have a Facebook page. I never ever go on it. So hit me up on Twitter mostly or Instagram if you want to holler. Well, at least you're on the gram. I mean, I, I get chastised all the time for being only on Twitter, and I'm like, yeah, well, but if you're in the golf industry or, like, you, you strive to know things about golf, Twitter is the platform, or at least as far as me and other people want to share information or concerns. So. That's it, and most of my Instagram is just pictures of my kid and my pets and then screenshots of my tweets about golf. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Well, we appreciate you guys taking the time for us. We appreciate Zach allowing us to try and uh, squeeze in a little uh, extra golf conversation in lieu of his absence, and uh, we uh, we hope we covered at least some entertaining stuff. It's definitely not what you wanted. I'm, I'm pretty sure odds are we didn't cover everything that you folks wanted out there, because we can't read your, your brains, but uh, as I read some of the comments, we want these conversations to be like, yeah, like two guys sitting in a cart bullshitting, and that's kind of the general consensus I've gotten from at least the USA Apple uh, the iTunes reviews is it, it's like this show is exactly what what I set it out to be was just something in the middle of the road. That's it. Like we're not real snooty and uh, and persnickety like the No Laying Up guys. Which shout out to them, they're wonderful. <laughs> and we're not complete freaking morons like the Barstool Sports guys. Oh, Barstool Sports, you can go to hell. I uh, am starting to find proof that I was the one who started Camp Kepka, not you, because now they're selling Camp fucking Kepka T-shirts, and I'm pretty damn sure if we go check the Twitter timeline. I started that back in April. <laughs> we'll, 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 that'll be pending, Barstool Sports. You guys are rip-offs. Hey, I say if you don't like this podcast, go chew some CBD gum. That's what I say. <laughs> uh, he said it best. All right, sucker. All right, Jerry, here we go. Thank you very much. Fade it out. We got to get it cracking here. Where's the fade-out music? Oh... Kenny Loggins sweat. Peace out, y'all. Go hit a golf ball or something. Thank y'all. Church.